we're in this culture of comparison now where we seem to all be living our best lives uh, in so- on social media. And so we're constantly comparing ourselves. So like every day, literally, you're measuring yourself against other people. So I think technology and this kind of people being in this kind of perpetual overwhelm where you feel like you, you can't keep up because guess what? No one can is contributing to it. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, have you ever caught yourself wondering if you're the right person for the job? Now, I'm not talking about if you're new to a job or if you're inexperienced or if you're young. I'm talking about CEO level, board level and everywhere in between. I'm talking about that feeling that at some point, everyone's going to figure you out. Everyone's going to figure out that you don't really know what you're doing and there's a possibility that you're just making it up as you go along, that potentially you don't belong in the position that you are in or that you found yourself in. And secondly, here's the biggie. Have those thoughts ever stopped you from shooting for something or asking for something that really mattered? Now, today's topic is, it's a deeply personal one for me, probably one of the most personal ones that I have done in terms of how much I resonate with the topic at hand. And it started for me in a hotel room, probably about, I don't know, six months ago. And in this hotel room, I was in a different country and I was preparing to give a speech to about 500 people. And that's not altogether unusual. It's something that I do on occasion. And on this particular day, what made it unusual is that I had found out that somebody was going to be in the room. Somebody that I respected, somebody that I had known for a long time and somebody that had known me in a previous incarnation in my career where my role it was to support them in their career. Now, we still had a deep affection for each other, and I was looking forward to seeing this person. However, from the second I found out that they were going to be in the room, something happened. I froze, completely froze. I had a lot of plans of what I was going to do for the 48 hours leading up to the speech, and all I did was sit in my room and obsess and derail myself and ask myself those questions I just mentioned. What are you doing here? Do you have a right to do do this? What on earth would you know anyway? Um, this person, they know you. You know, there's other, the other people in the room, they don't know you. You could probably buff them. But this person, they know you. And they're going to be sat there wondering what on earth you're doing on that stage. Now, eventually, during that 48 hours, I managed to, to talk myself relatively out of it and got up and did, did a good job. But I came away from that experience thinking, if... I can do that to myself and I work in this area and had I not been able to get control of my mind at the last moment I could have let down a lot of people who had believed in me enough to put me on that stage if I can do it then I'm pretty sure that this must be rampant because I have the tools or at least I thought I did and you know I coach people in this area 
And yet I couldn't stop it. So that's what makes the topic of imposter syndrome so personal to me. You know, as a mum, as a founder, as a speaker, you know, my inner voice can sometimes be louder than anything else. And I probably don't have enough fingers or toes to count the amount of times that voice has been loud enough to stop me at the last minute diving into something that could have been beautiful. So what did I do? Well, I came home. I, I sulked for about a week. Always strategy number one that I find to be the most effective. And eventually my husband slapped me around the head and he said, you know, you do this. Go find somebody. <laughs> Go find the number one voice on the planet in this area and talk to them. And so I did, and and we have, find her we have, and her name is Valerie Young. Now, Valerie has spoken at some of the world's largest and most diverse organizations, such as Apple, Chrysler, Boeing, Microsoft, IBM, Facebook, Google, TED, the list just keeps going, as well as at over 85 colleges and universities, including Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, MIT, Oxford. She is literally the the most pivotal voice that we could find on this topic and the most balanced and measured voice we could find on this topic. So this conversation, you're going to hear me talking more than most because I was so desperate to find some tools. In it, we dive into just exactly how far-reaching the effects of imposter syndrome are. 70% of people, 70% of people find themselves with that voice in their head. And here's a clue, it doesn't belong to an age group. Or a gender. I'm going to say that again. It does not belong to a gender. In fact, the further up the tree you go, the more likely you are to deal with it. What it can do to even the most capable of people and why it is vital that we learn how to deal with it or miss out on vast amounts of potential and opportunities. The tools to reframe that voice in our heads when it appears. To literally take that freeze effect and use it as fuel. Developing new responses to failure and mistake making. Now this one has been huge for me. So if you listen out for nothing, listen out for that one. My use of this tool actually started with my conversation with Mark Shulman, the drummer for Pink. And he introduced a phrase into my world, which is, am I free to fail? And I cannot tell you how many times I have used that particular phrase. And Valerie gives us many more why the belief that we are imposters relies on one fundamentally untrue assumption and what to do when we feel that cycle, that cycle of self-sabotage kick in. Now, this was one of those conversations that started out for me, doing it for me, and hopefully we'll continue to gain traction as we keep discussing in more and more places and certainly on this podcast, the stories that keep us small in business, in society, in life, and ways to flip that narrative to be able to make the largest contribution we are capable of making. And that fundamentally first involves the belief that we deserve to be there. So grab your favorite biscuits. This is a biscuit type conversation. I'm all in on Tim Tams at the moment if you're looking for a recommendation. Make sure you've got your pen and paper handy and let 2020 be the year that you finally let that imposter go. Enjoy my conversation with the incredible Valerie Young.
Welcome to the podcast, Valerie Young. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. I'm so, so excited to have you. I've been, I've actually genuinely been looking forward to this conversation. There are some interviews I have where I think this topic is really important for a certain group of people or people that I know. And then there are others where I think, no, I just need this one. This, this one's for me. <laughs> so we're going to, let's just kick off uh, with the question that I, that I always kick off with, which is whether you consider yourself, which is actually quite pertinent to this topic, whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. Well, a hundred years ago, I did the Myers-Briggs and I was just over the cusp into extrovert. Um, But I, as I've gotten older, I see myself more of an introvert who can do extrovert. I mean, I'm I'm very happy to get on stage in front of 3000 people. I have no problem whatsoever. I'd actually much rather do that than speak in front of, you know, 10 people. So an, an introvert that can turn it on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you met me on an airplane, you would not think of me as an introvert. You know, I, you know, I engage with people in the world all the time, but I, I wouldn't relish going to a social event, a networking event, you know, like a dinner party where I didn't know a lot of people that would take a lot of effort for me to, to turn it on for something like that. And you said that shifted. I'm just curious about that. That shifted over time for any particular reason, or you feel like it's just developed that way? Yeah, I think it's just developed, you know, because I, I, um, I'm single, you know, so I spend, I, I, I enjoy my own company and I spend time alone, which I enjoy. I've traveled, you know, I traveled to speak and, you know, for work. And so I, you know, go off and travel on my own outside of the speaking. Uh, and so I think, you know, maybe, maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. I wasn't hugely extrovert to begin with when I first took that test and, you know, who knows what kind of shifts things over the years, but, um, you know, I just enjoy alone time, quiet time. I don't have a huge need to, you know, I know extroverts are really fueled by, by people. Um, and, and I like people, <laughs> but I'm not like a, you know, really hardcore introvert, but I lean, I think I lean a little more over on that side. So we're, we're here, you know, the purpose of today is to talk about imposter syndrome. And I wanted to start out with a story that I heard you tell, which I loved, which was about when you were a 21-year-old doctoral student at the, at the same university where your mum was a night janitor. And, and I believe that's where you first discovered the term. Yeah, I, I was in graduate school and another student brought in a paper by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists at Georgia Tech University who first coined the term the imposter phenomenon. It's not really a, you know, psychologically diagnosable syndrome. It just got kind of popularly referred to that over the years. And she started reading from this paper and telling the class, like, look at this research. They found that all these, you know, bright, capable, competent, at the time they thought it was just women, right? So the, the paper was on, was called the imposter phenomenon amongst high achieving women. And she started describing this, you know, experience of feeling like you're in over your head, you're fooling people. You're not as intelligent, capable, competent, talented as people think you are. And that you're going to be found out. And I just sat there nodding my head like a bobblehead doll. And all the other graduate students were nodding their head. It's, it's epidemic amongst graduate students. Um, and we decided to start a little imposter support group. Right? We started meeting after class, talking about our intellectual fraudulence, how we're fooling all of our professors. And, and the story I tell, Julie, is that after a few weeks, I started to have this nagging sense that even though the other students were saying they were an imposter, like I knew I was the only real imposter. So clearly they were phony imposters. 
So you you convinced yourself that you were an imposter in the imposter support group. Oh, yeah. And I, I tell that story, especially when I speak to graduate students, because I know there's somebody, some are sitting there looking around going, yeah, right. You say they are, but I really, you have no idea. Like, I really, really am. So I want to just dispel that, you know, right off the bat when I speak to, especially to students. What well, you know, what I love, what I loved about that story is that, you know, there's, there's two parts to imposter syndrome. One is the, um, one is that I shouldn't be doing this. I'm an imposter. I don't know enough. And there's the the other part of it, which is that, you know, that sense that you're getting away with something that mm-hmm. be, that if anyone else were to find out, even the other people in your imposter support group, you wouldn't actually be all that upset. You know, you'd be like, well, you know, fair cop. You got me. I shouldn't be here. And so let's let's talk about let's let name that beast. You know, what is imposter syndrome? What, what does it sound like in our heads so that we can recognize the voice? Well, I think probably the the conversation we have in our head is different, you know, for everyone. Uh, It could be, you know, kind of, phew, got through that one, you know, but it's the next one that's going to be the big one where I'm really going to be found out. It could be leading up to any big, um, you know, endeavor or interview or presentation or, you know, whatever it might be of being, you know, absolutely convinced that it's going to be horrible, it's going to bomb, you know, and then you typically, you know, magically you know, do well and you're like, okay, again, got through that one. Uh, it could be just this, you know, it, what's interesting about, let me just say this, it's interesting about imposter syndrome is there's so much focus on it being something that impacts high achievers. But for some people, the conversation is very different because the conversation keeps them from even trying things to begin with. You know, it's, it's the conversation could be, well, I don't know enough to start a business or start this particular kind of business, or I don't have enough qualifications or, you know, I need to get another degree before I can, you know, go after this, this promotion or this job, or maybe not speaking up in a meeting or a class or asking questions, you know, out of this fear that if you do, you know, you're going to sound stupid and everyone's going to know you're stupid. So it really you know, varies for different people how how that plays out in our head. But the bottom line is that it 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 has a few elements. It is uh you know we these feelings are unconscious. Um, we we feel like we're not as you know we're fooling other people in some way, and and this is despite evidence of accomplishments and or abilities, you know, that are concrete and tangible. It could be the degree on the wall, letter of recommendation. Um, good performance reviews, profitability if you're a, a business owner. Uh, but we just dismiss or minimize or ignore. We externalize that uh, evidence and believe, you know, secretly we're really fooling them and that fear of being found out. That's the crux of it. I think that that's a really important point, the, the who suffers from it. Um, you know, I know that you've said in the past that it affects up to 70% of people and, and that was one of the big realizations for me early in my in my business journey, you know, you go you go into a lot of situations thinking everybody else must know, everybody mm-hmm. else must know what they're doing, everybody else must know what they're talking about, everybody else seems to must have this game plan, this you know divine strategy handed down through the ages that that I don't have access to, and and slowly over time, you start to have this dawning realization that that actually no we're all we're all just making this up everybody's we're all just making this up together trying to figure it out falling on our face and trying to get up quickly so that no one else notices it's the the imposter syndrome goes all the way up to the top in which has been my experience that 
many CEOs also suffer from it. Is that has that been your experience as well? That it's pretty much there's no particular demographic where this lives. No, absolutely. It could be the the first year engineering student, you know, at a small local college too, as you said, you know, CEO or COO or CFO at a you know multinational corporation. I spoke at a law firm in New York not too long ago, and I got an email afterwards from a man who said. Uh, I am the director of marketing for a billion-dollar international law firm, and I feel like an imposter because I don't have a law degree. Wow. So so whether it's, you know, full-tenured professors, I deal with a lot of, you know, I speak to a lot of uh, physicians and people in, in medical fields. You know, I speak to a lot of, a lot of tech companies. Uh, I mean, interesting, wide cross-section, you know, uh, romance writers of America, <laughs> Right. Women in trucking, you know, who are in corporate jobs in the trucking industry, um, you know, f- folks in in science, NASA, National Cancer Institute. So it's it's quite widespread, you know, up and down the organizational levels and, and across different fields and, and, and job titles. And does it I mean, you've obviously been doing this for a long time. Does it feel to you that it is more prevalent now? That seems to be. The feedback that I'm getting from organizations, you know, that we, we keep hearing this word, we keep hearing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. It seems to be growing now. Is it, is it really growing? Are we just talking about it more? Have we just given it a name and now it's easier? Yeah, I don't know, because it's certainly been around for, you know, again, since the late 1970s, the, the term. I, I think a few things are happening. I think, um, you know, men are talking about it a lot more, where, you know, historically, there was pressure to not talk about, you know, what might be perceived as a vulnerability or a weakness. And especially, you know, millennial men, Gen Z, you know, they're fine with just yeah, for the most part, you know, in, in an event I've been in, raising their hand and talking about their experiences. I also think that we're in this culture of comparison now. Where you know somehow we seem to all be living our best lives uh, in, on social media, and so we're constantly comparing ourselves. Uh, I, I'm not going to say the firm, but I, I spoke uh, at a you know big tech firm, and uh, they have this app where every day, many times a day, they can go in and compare themselves compared to other people in the organization with the same job. So like every day, literally you're measuring yourself against other people. So I think technology and this kind of people being in this kind of perpetual overwhelm uh, where you feel like you, you can't keep up because guess what? No one can is contributing to it. The, let's have a look at what happens, what happens next, because it's one thing to feel like an imposter syndrome, but then it actually has a, has a consequence, right? I think, for me, if I look at the moments where I feel that way, where that narrative runs through my head, you know, who do you think you are? You've got away with it up until now. Tomorrow's going to be the day. The, what happens to me in that moment is I've, I've come to notice a sequence of, of effects. At it, and it starts with control. You know, my control tendencies will, will kick in. So let's if we talk about the podcast, for example. If I'm nervous about an interview and I feel like I'm going to be in over my head in this conversation, then I will out-research anybody else. Mm-hmm. I will literally put in insane amounts of hours researching this topic to degrees that I, that I know I don't need to. The second thing that will kick in after that is the perfectionism. I need to get the exact perfect questions exactly right and in the exact order that they should be in. And then the last thing that kicks in when I know I'm in this state is paralysis, and that's where I'll have 
over-controlled, over-try to get it perfect and my brain just freezes and then I'm not even able to do a good job in the moment when it counts. What, what can you do in those moments where you, where you feel that cycle kicking, whatever your cycle is? Well, I would say that the first thing you might want to do is appreciate. Get a therapist? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, you know, I think this, I think this topic is over-psychologized, frankly. Um, but it, it, what you're describing is what Pauline Clance would describe as these coping and protecting mechanisms that people who have imposter feelings use to, uh, number one, uh, deal with the anxiety of the expression we would use in the United States is waiting, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop right? Waiting to be found out and also to avoid being found out. So I would invite you, Julie, to appreciate the fact that on some level, unconsciously, you are trying to do the best you can to take care of yourself in this situation. You know, that pattern is there to serve you. It's there to protect you from something and avoid, you know, failure, humiliation, disappointment, uh, and so on. Uh, on the flip side, that, then we have to look at, uh, but what at what cost, right? So we have these patterns, which you, you named as perfectionism, uh, kind of over-preparing, overworking paralysis. For someone else, it could be flying under the radar. You know, they don't speak up. They don't go for more advanced opportunities, assignments. They don't scale their business. They stay in jobs they've long outgrown because it's safer there. It could be for someone else, it could be procrastination. It could be never starting or finishing the business plan, the degree, uh, the painting, the book. Uh, it could be self-sabotage, uh, coming, showing up late to an important meeting or or interview or job hopping or, you know, alcohol or substance abuse. So there's many forms that, that the behaviors can take, which is why I think it's important to understand there are behaviors because this is not just an interesting self-help topic. There are consequences for individuals and organizations. So again, on, on the plus side to appreciate your pattern, because it is, it's there to help you again, avoid something, protect you some, from something or get you something. Because if you over-prepare, and you're a perfectionist, well, guess what? You're probably going to have, you know, a pretty darn good podcast, right? Hard work typically is going to lead to more success. So that that's a hard pattern to break. You know, on the flip side, when you get to the costs and you ask yourself, you know, what will happen if I never change this pattern? You know, what experiences and opportunities am I missing out on and what price will I pay? I don't think you're in any big danger zone here, you know, but if you were telling me that you were kind of sleeping you know, three hours a night or something because you're, you know, obsessive about getting everything right, then there'd be a pretty big cost there. One of the costs that I have noticed, and it's probably one of the most minimal costs, you know, when you compare it to never starting, self-sabotaging, um, at an organizational and a personal level. One of the costs that I have noticed that's just base level is the the robbing of joy. You know, yes, you, you take something that you love and you take something that beget, that begins with a sense of genuine curiosity and then that cycle kicks in and then all of a sudden the joy that you had that was associated with it gets squeezed out. Like my husband caught me. I had a conversation that I was so looking forward to with a professor of economics at Stanford University and we were going to be talking about network theory, which is something that I'm very passionate about. And he... He had written this textbook and I spent night after night reading this textbook on network theory. And my husband would come to bed and he was like, what do you, do you have a PhD yet? Like what, yeah, right. what do you, what do you think? How, how do you think this is helping you? Like you're, the whole idea is that you're supposed to take this topic and, and decode it. Not that you're supposed to become an expert in it. So 
And I think that the joy at a very minimum is is what gets robbed. Well, that and, you know, the time that you're taking, you know, putting in, you know, three hours into something that could be done in, you know, a half an hour, for example, is time that you could be using to do other things. You know, so it's, you know, you're also wasting valuable time. Valuable sleeping time. Yeah. I want to talk about, I want to talk about bulletproof people. I think we all have people in our lives that we watch from the sideline and think, you know, that individual, they're bulletproof. They're, you know, they have this sense of certainty about them that they bring into everything that they do. They, they don't feel the same way that I do. They don't fear the same things that I do. Now, I don't know whether that's true or whether that's not true, but what's behind that? So people who don't feel imposter syndrome, let's assume that they don't. What's behind that seemingly never-ending wall of certainty that some people bring into a room? Yeah, I don't know that they have, you know, certainly there is that appearance. And I always uh, invite people to not confuse confidence with competence. Because to the outside observer, there are people who appear, you know, eternally um, confident. And maybe, let me be clear, maybe fully competent. Um, But then there's others who just know how to kind of talk a good game and project tremendous confidence. And why I think that's important distinction is the research shows that in a leaderless group, people are more willing to follow the more confident person over the more competent person, which I think is something interesting to think about because there are people certainly who I speak with who they're, they're already fully competent, you know, full stop. That, that doesn't mean they can't grow and learn, but what they do need to do a better job at is projecting confidence. On the flip side, I'll often ask my audiences, uh, Julie, you know, how many of you would love to feel confident 24-7? And half the room raises their hand. And my response is, good luck with that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not how it works, right? We have Denzel Washington, before he walked out on, on stage uh, when he was in, on Broadway for Fences, he said, when you're standing in the wings, if you don't have that what the hell am I doing here moment, it's time to hang it up. You know, we need to normalize fear. We have moments of fear. We have moments of confidence. It's just, you know, we're kind of hardwired to have anxiety around new or big or challenging kinds of things. You know, that said, there are people who I will call them non-imposters for the sake of a term, but I don't think anybody really is an imposter in terms of imposter syndrome. Um, I think the big difference, uh, Julia, is that in the exact same situation that might trigger an imposter, you know, response in, in, in you or me, they are just thinking different thoughts. You know, which is good news because it means we just have to learn to think like them. And, and it's not just kind of motivational, you know, happy talk. It's not you've got this and you can do it. And that's only going to get you so far. People who don't feel like imposters. And I'm referring to people here who are humble, but genuinely have never had these feelings. I'm not talking about the narcissistic smartest guy in the room who doesn't know what they don't know. But the the, the humble person who does not feel like imposter, they think differently about competence. They think differently about failure, mistakes, and criticism, and they think differently about fear. And if we can reframe that conversation in our head to learn to think like them, you know, my mantra is that, you know, feelings are the last to change. The only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. I love, I love the concept of reframe. Because, you know, it's not about not feeling this way. Because as you said, you know, our bodies react to stimulus. They react to fear in some ways, in many, exactly the same way that they react to excitement. Absolutely. So it's not about not feeling it. It's not about not thinking it. It's about having some tools to reframe it in the moment. 
So yeah, and to talk yourself down faster. What is a reframe? Can you just give us give an example yeah, of a reframe? Let's say you're, you're, you've got this big uh, client or a new, a new project or a new assignment or a promotion. You know, the, the imposter might think, um, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. The non-imposter thinks, wow, I've never done this before, but I could probably figure it out. Or I've never done this before, so therefore I'm really going to learn a lot. It's a difference between a student who steps onto a very prestigious university campus and, and says, oh, my God, everyone here is brilliant, or walks into a conference, right, and says, everyone here is brilliant, and they're dreading that, versus the person who walks in and goes, wow, everyone here is brilliant. I am going to learn so much. What's your, what's your favorite reframe of all time? <laughs> well, I often quote, there's a, a, a historical figure, uh, American historical figure, Daniel Boone, who was a wilderness explorer. And he said, I was never lost, but I was bewildered once for three days. Uh, but my favorite reframe that I recommended to somebody, there was a woman who was asked to make a presentation at the very last minute. The person who was supposed to do it you know, couldn't do it. They threw her into the situation. She quickly, you know, put it, got it together, did the presentation. Everyone said she knocked it out of the park, that it was outstanding. But she said all she could think to herself was, oh, man, that was just a bunch of BS that I threw together at the last minute. And I said, no, the reframe here is, wow, how good am I <laughs> that I can pull together information at the 11th hour that other people genuinely found useful? Is there... Is there a reframe that you're using a lot at the moment? You know, I, I'm not doing a whole lot of reframing at the moment. I mean, <laughs> I think I've been doing this for, I, let, me, let me be clear. If Oprah called me tomorrow, right, I would have an imposter moment. I more try to model. I was on stage a couple weeks ago in Orlando. It was the Academy of Healthcare Executives, like 300 people conference. And I, I got a scratchy throat and I was kind of coughing in the middle of my presentation. I had to excuse myself and go get some water. So I turned back to the audience and I said, how many of you would be mortified right now? If this was you and suddenly you're coughing in the middle of your presentation, how many of you would be mortified? And a lot of people raised their hand. I said, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I said, and the reason I don't care anymore is that no one stormed out of the room. No one said, I can't believe the speaker is coughing, right? I mean, I, I think the older I get, the more I put these things into perspective. Uh, I've, I've been using um, a, a story a lot in my talks, and it comes from Betty Rollins. She was an NBC, uh, it's, it's a U.S. Uh, network, a television network, NBC News correspondent. And she wrote a column in the New York Times probably in the early 80s, and it was called Chronic Self-Doubt, Why Does It Afflict So Many Women? And I'm just going to really paraphrase because a few more pieces to it. But basically, she talked about having that I'm in over my head and they're going to find out, you know, feeling her whole professional career. And she wondered if other people felt the same way. So she went to a producer who she said, by the way, was as competent as he thought he was. And she said, when you're working on a story, do you ever worry that it's not going to work out? And he was like, you know, sometimes, you know. And she said, well, you know, like if, if it uh, if it didn't work out, would you blame yourself? And he's like, no, you know, sounding very sure. And she said, well, if it was your fault, would you feel badly about it? And he said, nah. <laughs> and and she, she said, I looked at him and said, why not? And he said, aren't I entitled to make a mistake once in a while? And I remember reading that line over and over and over because, frankly, that was new information to me. 
I think it's new information to anyone who feels imposter syndrome. Um, and, and, and when you think about it, if you knew you're entitled to have an off day, which we all are, to make a mistake once in a while, not constantly, if you're constantly making a mistake, you're in the wrong occupation, you know, but once in a while, or to not know the answer, or to struggle to understand or master something or ask for help, there will be absolutely nothing to feel like an imposter about. So non-impostors are able to shake it off more quickly and say, you know, let me be clear, they could be crushingly disappointed, but they're not ashamed. And that's the key difference. If they gave it their best shot, then they're not ashamed. It's like sports, right? Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, and they, you know, they, I'll get some more training, I'll get some more coaching, I'll practice, and we'll get them next time. But imposters feel shame no matter how much effort they gave it, because they feel like they should always excel. One of the best lines, one of the best lines I ever heard on that was I interviewed Mark Shulman, who's Pink's drummer. So he travels around the world drumming for Pink in her concerts in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And his biggest fear is there's a few solos that he has to do. It's a close-up on him. Pink's literally stood in front of him singing to him. And his biggest fear is he's going to drop the stick. He's going to get halfway through that. He's going to drop the stick on the floor. The whole song is going to stop halfway through. And he developed this mantra that he had for himself, which was, am I free to fail? And he, and he would say that to himself before he got on the stage. Do you know what? Am I free to fail here? Do I have all the freedoms in the world to get this wrong? And ever since I've heard that, I've used it, and I've used it so many times, going into situations, presentations, um, moments in time where that feeling, that fear of failure is high. And that am I free to fail? I don't know. It somehow just calms the nervous system. Of course I am. Of course I'm free to fail, just like anybody else. And it's that developing a new response to failure. Yes. That, that, that makes a massive difference. And I think the more you can do that, almost, like, almost the less fear you feel. I had to do a presentation recently, and it was on a topic that was very personal to me. It was on a... Um, a topic of, of IVF, which is something I had never spoken about publicly before. And I had to get on stage and do this 20-minute presentation on my experiences with it. And someone said, are you terrified? And I said, yeah, I kind of am, and I'm also kind of not. You know, if I, if I fall on my face, I've fallen on my face so many times before that I've kind of, I'm all right with it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of all right with it. And the more you give yourself permission to fail, I feel like the, the more the fear almost goes down. Absolutely. You know, because otherwise it, it's almost like we're expecting ourselves to have an Academy Award winning performance every time we step out the door. And that's just not realistic. You know, again, we're going to have good days and bad and, you know, enjoy the enjoy the when it goes really well and forgive yourself when it, you have an off day or or, you know, it's not always you. I, you know, I've given the same talk literally tens of thousands of times and, and there could be one audience that is just totally into it, engaged, and you know, right there, and another audience that's just sitting there looking at me blankly, you know. And I want to say, "Are you kidding me? That joke killed at the University of Iowa." You know, <laughs> it's like nothing. And I finally realized it's not always me. You know, there's all kinds of other external things going on. So let's talk about the reframe. Let's talk about the reframe as an art form. You know, an art form that we can practice, we can get better at. What, walk me through specifically what happens. So if something comes up in my brain, I decide I need to reframe it. What do I do? Well, you want to become aware of, again, what is the conversation that's happening in your head? And then I, you know, one thing is to think, imagine calling in the script writers. You know, if you could call in someone to play the part of you, 
and redo that, you know, whatever that situation was that's prompted those feelings. Uh, and you might try imagining someone who you, who you see as being, you know, very competent, very confident, you know, and how might they, what might they be thinking in the same situation? And what might they be feeling? In it and what might they do? And then just step back and take a moment to, you know, kind of play that in your head a few times. And, and here's the thing is, somebody said to me once in a talk, she said, Valerie, this is great. What if we tell ourselves all these things, but we still don't believe it? And my response was, no, you're not going to believe it. I mean, trust me, you will not believe it, right? You believe the old, unhealthy imposter rule book. But you have to keep telling yourself this because over time you do start to believe it. Over time you do start to realize, you know, I, we're all entitled to make a mistake. We're all entitled to have an off day or whatever it might be, you know. And I just, you know, and, and over time, it, hopefully the goal is to really, again, it's not about never feeling like an imposter again. It's about having the insight and the tools and the information to talk yourself down faster when you're on that ledge. And, but sometimes, you know, I mean, you, you can get really good at it to the point where, let me be clear, if someone criticizes us, even if it's constructive criticism, you know, our first initial response is going to feel, you know, protective and a little defensive. But then you want to immediately shift to, um, you know, seeing that as a gift, for example, to shift to if someone says to you, you did an outstanding job to say, thank you so much. What's one thing I could have done even better? To see yourself as this constant kind of work in progress who, you know, is seeking out information to grow and learn and improve. You said something there that I just want to dive into a little bit further. You talked about rewriting the script. The way I've, I've heard about that, talked about in different fields, is, is almost using alter egos. And I've tried it and I have found it quite successful in the moment where you, you think of somebody you really admire who does what you're about to do really well or holds themselves really well or handles certain situations really well and just try and bring that in almost you know suck the script out of them and bring it into yourself have you found that like almost developing a persona and a Beyonce had Sasha Fierce um, an alternate persona have you found that to be helpful yeah, I certainly think there's some people who that could be very helpful for to, you know, again, imagine whether it's someone who's you know, a historical figure, a contemporary figure who you admire, you know, it might be, you know, for some person, it might be, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, for someone else, it might be, who knows, Bill Gates, or, you know, the head of a country or, and I'm forgetting her name, the wonderful Prime Minister of New Zealand, right? But if you can picture someone who you admire, how they, as you said, how they hold themselves, how they present themselves, and to almost, you know, kind of imitate that in a way, not, of course, their voice or anything like that, but just to imagine yourself in that role. Research has shown, for example, they took introverts and they had them pretend to be extroverts for, I forget, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And afterwards, they they asked them a series of questions and they felt, you know, happier and more elated so you can kind of pretend to feel more confident than you feel. I don't mean this big kind of faking it kind of way, but I think there are some techniques. And there's a study, and I'm going to say this, but I'm going to also tell you that I don't have the information in front of me, so I'm, you know, you don't quote me on it fully. But the essence of it was that they found that when people talk to themselves in the third person, that it helped around confidence and imposter syndrome. 
And do you, this sounds like a ridiculous question. Do you, do, would you do that in your own voice or would you pick somebody else's voice? It's a bit like the sat nav. Which voice would you pick for that? Uh, well, in that particular study, they were saying you're using your own, you know, I don't know because I don't use that technique. Um, but I just, the study did find that if people spoke to themselves, I don't know that they changed their voice per se, but uh, spoke to themselves in the third person. Somehow it made it, I don't know, maybe less uh, more objective, the conversation they're having in their head. I don't, I don't know what the reason was why it was useful, um, but why not if that's something that helps? If you need to bring in, I don't know, Yoda, Michelle Obama, whoever it is is your sideline coach. Bring there you them go. In. Yep. Uh, let's talk about reframing the rules. Now, that's another reframe. Mm-hmm. That, that I think it can be really helpful for people. Walk, walk me through that. What does reframing the rules look like? Uh, now, are you referring to the list that I have in my book? It was one of the 10, one of the 10 tools. Oh, um, well, I think it's probably, you know, in, in workshops, there's a page in my book and workshops years ago, I used to hand out this list of rights. And these were rights that we're all perfectly entitled to, but you know, we sometimes act as if we're not. And I, and I tell people, try to avoid intellectualizing and just check off all the ones that you, know, you sometimes act like you're not entitled to. And those are some of the ones we talked about, like I'm not entitled to make a mistake or be wrong or you know, work and raise children at the same time or you know, I don't have the right to be the spokesperson for my entire gender or race or whatever it might be. And so often people just go down and check, 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 check. Uh, and then I, you know, invite them to kind of star the one that if they could really turn that around and really believe that, in fact, yes, you do have the right to express your opinion or to not have all the answers or to ask for clarification if you don't understand something, um, you know, which would have the biggest impact on your, you know, your life professionally. And that's where the person needs to spend some focus on. But these are all things that, you know, we, again, unconsciously, we behave as if we don't have these rights. And I think if we really can kind of write those rules and realize, yeah, we, you know, have the right to make a mistake, have an off day, not understand. You know, I was thinking about you and your, your over-preparing for your podcast, especially, you know, around <laughs> this, getting is, the this PhD, is turning into right? a personal coaching session for me. I'm all for well, it. Go for you know, it. I've got this section of my book. There's a, a guy named Ted Koppel, which not everyone listening would know. He was, he hosted a, a television show in the U.S. called Nightline for a couple of decades. He's a you know, well-regarded, award-winning journalist. He interviewed you know, um, scientists and gov- you know, heads of state and pr- president and CEOs of companies and so on. And he was asked once by Jonathan Alter from Newsweek, do you ever feel like you don't know enough when you're asked on a, on a show to ask the really tough questions? And he said, no, I don't worry about that. He said, I like to be as informed as possible, but I don't consider it a handicap when I know next to nothing. And he went on to say two things. One, he sees himself as a conduit to the audience. So if he doesn't understand, then they probably don't understand. So his job is to say, well, what do you mean by that? And can you explain that? But the other reason, uh, Julie, he said, I feel like I could pick up enough information in a short period of time to be able to bullshit my way with the best of them. <laughs> and I think, you know, for a lot of us, especially women, there's this very negative connotation. Like we're, n- nobody's seeking to be a bullshit artist, you know, we think of that as a used car salesman or, you know, somebody who's kind of, you know, sleazy or slimy. But, you know, Ted Koppel, again, award winning journalist, he, he can bullshit his way with the best of them. So, you know, I invite people to think about what's another way to reframe that that we can live with, you know, because what he's really saying is improvise, you know, see to your pants, thinking on your feet, you know, hanging in there with the conversation. 
And those are all things that I think are worthwhile skills uh, for all of us. And there's something in there around that, that I am mid-learning right now. Now that I, you know, when I first started this podcast, there were many factors in my life that, that, that weren't there and that, you know, now more children, um, more aspects to my, to my business, more people, you know, larger team, which mm-hmm. means that I don't have the luxury that I used to have of endless, you know, amounts of time that I can squeeze in to do these things. And I think that there's this moment, I hate calling it surrender because I, that word just, I feel my, my shackles go up at that word, but it's trust. You know, there's, there's a moment where you just have to trust the conversation, mm-hmm. trust yeah, the conversation I- and your ability to handle that conversation with curiosity and humility and openness you know, my entrepreneur friends, I know a lot of very successful um, entrepreneurs, and their mantra is half ass is better than no ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and they don't mean do a bad job, right? But they mean you have to get podcast one out the door, you have to get product one out the door, and you can course correct and improve as you go along. Now, we would not be so crass here, you know, on this podcast or in the corporate world or the academic world as to say half ass is better than no ass. But in the in the in the technology field and the software field, there's an article a guy wrote on um, in a technical magazine about GEQ, good enough quality, exact same concept of half ass is better than no ass. But it's, 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 it's this paradigm around how do you know how do software companies decide when to release and ship a you know product knowing that even though they've worked out as many bugs as they know of, in the future there'll be more things that they're going to need to patch and, and fix. You know, when we, when we started this podcast, myself and the producer, the, the one line we kept coming back to over and over and over again was making a perfectly imperfect contribution was better than no contribution at all. Absolutely. And that was the, you know, we just kept coming back to that. We, we are here to make a perfectly imper- imperfectly imperfect contribution to an important conversation. And that's the goal. Well, and that's wonderful because, you know, I think what people need to realize around imposter syndrome is this is not all about them. It's not all about you or me, you know, that everybody loses when bright people hold back or play small. And we all have a, a gift, a contribution to make. It doesn't have to be perfect. But, you know, if, if we hold that back, then no one wins. And then you come to learn that it's actually the moments where you think that it wasn't perfect that, that other people resonate with. It's the... It's the moments when you go off script. It's the moments when you don't know. It's the moments that that are actually more attractive to people's attention than the gloss of perfection. Yeah, because they see that you're, you're human. You you said something else I want to very quickly go into there, which was around, um, I can't remember the exact words that you used, but it was basically, you know, who am I to be a spokesperson? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that there's this consensus out there almost that I call it the divine intervention moment that somehow you will be picked you know that the heavens will open the lights will shine and there'll be a spotlight on you and a giant voice will be like it is you you are the chosen one and you know that that happens in movies it happens as part of the hero's journey but it rarely if ever happens happens in real life in real life you have to you have to choose you and I feel like that there's a lot of people waiting to be chosen is there, is that something that you have found? And if so, how do you get over that moment of actually choosing you? Yeah, I'm glad you continue with the story because I was going, oh my God, I've never heard that voice. 
<laughs> no one has. Yeah, Holy I feel crap, like we're something wrong with me. <laughs> I, I feel like we're all waiting, especially when you use the word spokesperson. You know, especially when it comes to an important cause or being the 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 face of an important movement. I feel like everybody's waiting for somebody else. It's a bit like Star Wars: somebody else to be chosen by the Force. Right, right. And no one yeah. is ever chosen by the Force. Right. You have to step up and do it uh, and do it, you know, and it, regardless of how confident you feel, you know, regardless of whether you think, you know, as much as you could know or should know. Somebody said to me once, you know, aren't you worried going out there giving these talks that there might be someone in the audience who knows more about this topic than you do? And I said, what do I care if there's somebody I'm like, Good. wouldn't that be great? Because maybe they'll tell me something I don't know. And I can learn from them. I have no need to be like the, the supreme imposter expert on any level so i think it's also kind of a, a mindset thing that you bring to it this is this is my perspective this is how i view the topic but i could be on a panel with other people and we might all you know bring a different lens to the exact same topic uh, but i agree i think a lot of people especially i see aspiring entrepreneurs who who hold back or people who don't put their art out in the world or don't write their book or what have you because they're kind of waiting uh, you know, for someone to notice them and pick them or they don't go for promotions because they're expecting somebody's going to come to them and say, you know, you need a big promotion as opposed to stepping up themselves and just putting themselves out there and raising their hand and asking for what they, they want and need. And there's that there's a difference, right, which is what you were just describing between being certain, you know, you were talking about the difference between confidence and competence. You know, being certain is to be closed off. You know, I am certain, therefore no other opinions are welcome. There's a difference between that and speaking with certainty, getting up there and saying, you know, today I give you the best that I have. It's the best that I've got. All of my experiences, all of my knowledge, everything has brought me to this place. However, if there's somebody in this room that has something to, to contribute to this conversation that knows something that I don't, I would love that. I'm way open to changing my mind. There's, there's a difference between those two positions, Oh, absolutely. And I think from a leadership perspective that the most successful people are the people who surround themselves with people who know more than they do and can inform them. They're not threatened by other people's you know, contributions or, or intelligence. Uh, I think his name is David Schwartz. The last name's definitely Schwartz, but he's a 38-year-old CEO of the, the holding company that owns, I think it's uh, Burger King, uh, Tim Horton, and I want to say Popeye, but don't quote me on that. But you can find interviews with him in the New York Times. And, and I love this. He's 38, and he talks about humility as being something that, you know, is so important to him and in others. And when he's interviewing people, he'll ask the person uh, for a job. He'd say, would, you know, would you say you're really smart or would you say you work really hard? And I'm sure there are some people who, you know, basically say, well, I'm so smart, I don't have to work hard. <laughs> you know, you know, eh, I don't want to hire you. He's looking for people who, you know, who uh, persevere, you know, have a strong work ethic, they're determined, and they're humble. And I think one of the problems with imposter syndrome is we get really hung up on being, quote unquote, smart. I really try to banish that word from my vocabulary, especially in speaking to kids, because uh, you know, I tell, it, it's such a trap. You know, we're, we're, there's always going to be somebody who's quote unquote smarter than us. And, and everyone has is going to have the opportunity to feel stupid sometime in the next 24, 48 hours. And if you don't, I'm frankly scared for you, you know, because it means you're not learning anything. The the area where I'm where I'm definitely feeling that at the moment is actually ironically not in business. It's in parenting. 
Mm. We, you know, I travel a fair amount with what I do. And, and my husband, he's in real estate, so he often has to do odd hours. And so we brought an au pair into our home. And this this woman has just revolutionized our life. But she's a fully trained daycare worker she's a fully trained childcare worker she's been doing it for years she has experiences with children of all ages and she's half my age and so she comes into our home and and I felt about two inches tall because I'm I'm making up parenting as I go I have no qualifications in this at all I have a lot of love and a lot of intent but you know, and I, I would feel like she was watching me from the other side of the room with my, you know, haphazard parenting skills and thinking, oh, dear lady, oh, what are you doing? You're not, you're not qualified for this. Get out of the way. And I had to really try and get over that in my own home because I, I, I could feel myself shrinking as in I don't know what I'm doing here. She probably knows more than I do. And oh, my goodness, she's half my age. And oh, my goodness, my kids are probably looking at me thinking I don't know what I'm doing. And they're only three. Yeah. So now, I wonder if now does your husband have that same response? Interesting question. Interesting question. My my husband is. It's funny. I was talking to him last night that I was I was going to be having this conversation with you, and I said, "What questions would you have about imposter syndrome?" Now, you know, I don't want to make this so much about gender, but specifically who he is. I he just looked at me and he was like, "Oh, that's that thing where you don't feel like you." you know enough right or you that you that you don't belong or you're a bit of a fraud and I said yeah what what questions do you have about that and he's like I don't know um I don't know I don't really feel that way and he I think he genuinely he genuinely doesn't and he's not a he's not cocky and he's not arrogant I think he just he shows up he does he does his best he's one of those people that just rarely asks himself what other people think and I think, you know, I think that from a gender component there, that there is a piece of that there of, you know, for lots of reasons, and that's a whole different conversation, but, you know, that women tend to have a greater sensitivity around what people might think. I, I was I, The reason I asked if your husband felt the same way is I had an electrician come to my house recently, and I said, when you go to a house where there's a man there, do they ever apologize when the house is a mess? <laughs> he said, never. <laughs> he said, Never. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to stop doing that. Like, oh, don't look. The house is a mess right now. I'm in between all these projects. Like, they don't care. (laughs) But we do. Guarantee they haven't noticed. Guarantee. There's a question, and I want to run this by you for your, firstly, for your expert opinion, but but secondly, to see if if you've got a layer on top of it that could actually improve it. There's There's a question that I have used many times that I find helps me. And it's, it's this question of who do you think you are? And I feel like my moments where I am going through that cycle, you know, that the cycle of over-preparing, control, perfectionism and paralysis, the fear, if I go right down at the bottom of it, the fear is that I'm afraid that either I or someone else is going to ask me the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be having this conversation? Who do you think you are to broach this topic? Who do you think you are to be a spokesperson for this? And I have found that if I can answer it for myself in my own head, then when it gets asked or when I ask myself, it's actually an an opportunity to step further into it as opposed to an opportunity to go, you're right, I have no idea. I'm just, I'm going to go home. Taxi. Mm -hmm. So I have found that question and getting a handle on that question very helpful. Is there... 
Is there anything that you can add to that that would that could take it to another level there? You know, I, I, I know that that is a voice in a lot of people's heads. And I, and I know it was a voice in my head, you know, when I was younger. Um, I think I feel very differently about it now because I feel like I'm just human. I'm just kind of bumbling along like the rest of us. I know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. Um, now, I have a doctoral degree. And it's an EDD. And I mention that because these kinds of things really matter in the, I'm not an academic, but I speak at a lot of universities, but in the world of academia. And so an EDD is kind of considered like the the bottom of the barrel, right, in terms of a, a doctoral degree. Within disciplines, everyone in physics or engineering or medicine knows what you know, mechanical is less prestigious than, you know, electrical engineering, then you know, astrophysics is more, you know, whatever. Everybody has their kind of hierarchy. And so that was something that I had to kind of deal with, especially speaking a lot of universities a long time ago. And again, I, I don't care anymore. I really don't care. <laughs> I cannot control what someone else thinks. I can only control my response. And I look at it like, uh, you might be an astrophysicist. So clearly, you know, you know, vastly more about astrophysics than I know, which is like nothing. But I have my gifts and I have my knowledge base and I have, you know, my contribution to the world, which would be challenging or difficult or you would have no perspective on. So I think I just, you know, again, this has been acquired over the years. I just have come to kind of terms with, with again, what I know, what I don't know, um, you know, like to think of myself as a, a lifelong active learner. And I'm a little more forgiving. And this might help some of your listeners, Julie. There was a study out of the University of Vienna that found that people who had high self-compassion in terms of how they spoke to themselves had less uh, imposter syndrome. People who had low self-compassion, you know, when people beat themselves up, you're such an idiot, you're so stupid, um, they had more imposter syndrome. So, you know, another example for reframing There's a difference between walking out of a meeting or hanging up the phone and going, oh, I'm so stupid versus saying, I felt so stupid. Wow. That I am, the internalizing of it, it is part of my identity as opposed to in this moment, I either made a stupid comment or I feel a little stupid right now. Such a very um, delicate distinction, but makes all the difference in the world. Oh, absolutely. Because we all feel stupid from time to time. You know, we all get egg in our face or we blow the moment or don't get it right or could have done better. You know, again, we'll get them next time. Right. You know, I think sports is such a a great metaphor, you know, for life because we think success is a straight line, you know, straight up. But it's, you know, hills and peaks and valleys. You know, your 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 listeners might want to Google Princeton professor failure CV. The guy has posted his very prestigious, uh, he's a tenured faculty member at Princeton University, his very prestigious CV, and then he has his failure CV. He has the, the grants he didn't get, the publications that rejected his, his work, the jobs he didn't get. Because uh, again, I think it's a great reminder for people that you, know, you get them next time, right? Ups and downs throughout your whole life. I actually developed a, a pathological fear of a certain, this is going to sound ridiculous, a certain toilet in a certain airport. Because mm. I felt like there were so many pitches early in my business career that I did that went badly that oh, I felt ridiculous or was a no. 
And I always seem to find myself at the same airport, sat in the same toilet cubicle, just with my head in my hands, thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe. I can't believe I just messed that up. And, you know, but I love that, a failure CV. You know, I wrote down every single one of those. How qualified does that make you? To have fallen on your face that many times. I mean, at the end of that, you know, obstacle course, you're going to be good. And that's one of the problems with people who feel like imposters. Again, we look at other people and we think for them it looks easy. You know, I describe myself as a 33-year overnight success. You know, and years ago, uh, a, a guy who I truly admire, my, my, the, the chair of my dissertation committee and also, you know, a, a very accomplished speaker, Bailey Jackson, he, he said to me, it's our job to make it look easy like when you're on stage, but getting to the point where it looks easy, it takes a lot of work. You know, uh, Chris Rock, the American comedian, before he goes out, goes on one of the late night talk shows, he goes out and does a few nights of stand up to, you know, get in, in the groove again. You know, this is his, clearly his profession. He's incredibly good at it. But we think that, oh, no one else has to practice, rehearse, you know, write multiple drafts. And that's just not, true i mean it's we all have to keep working at getting good and staying good and getting better i mean that's like assuming serena williams doesn't train before a grand grand slam (laughs) but she somehow stopped training 10 years ago yeah exactly now you have said that the major contradiction which i love this in imposter logic is that other people are so stupid and i'd never i'd literally never thought about it that way can you just expand on that yeah, you know, because when someone tells, says to you, let's say someone comes up to me after my talk and they go, that was really good, Valerie. You know, I learned a lot. And, and if I looked at them and said, wow, really? I mean, you know, do you get out of the house much or what? <laughs> have you ever been to a presentation or have you ever heard of, you know, someone on a podcast before? And think about how arrogant and how absurd it would sound. You know, because it does it. And actually, I have to give credit to Pauline Clance because she talked about that, that, this notion that, you know, clearly other people are so stupid, they don't realize that you're you're an imposter. And it is, it's arrogant and, it, and it's absurd. And the, the, the more appropriate answer would be, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm glad, thank you, I appreciate it. I worked hard on that. I appreciate you saying that or noticing. Or one thing, I, you know, is there something I could have done even better? Um, but yeah, because, you know, whether it's admissions officers or hiring managers or, you know, clients or customers, it does assume that there's, you know, they're inept that they actually picked you. Or- and, you know, I, I'd never thought about it that way. The assumption is that other people are stupid if they haven't noticed. But in thinking about that, and I'm going to take that with me, it also got me thinking about the opposite end of that spectrum, which is how you handle the nemesis. I'm going to call it the nemesis. You know, let's say that you're about to, you're a political candidate and you're about to get up on stage and you're about to do a debate where someone is going to be actively pointing out all the areas where you are incompetent, all the areas where you don't, you're not as good as you think that you are, where that you don't know that you don't know, or, which is another fear that I think a lot of people have, that you're going to put it out there. You're going to put it out there online or, you know, in the media and there's going to be some kind of aftermath of people pointing out all of the ways that you, you should have stayed quiet. Is there, in that moment when the backlash comes, if and when, and let's just say when, when the backlash comes or when the disagreement comes, is there any particular reframe, call it a mantra? Um, is there something that we can do to stay, to stay on target, stay focused? 
Yeah, you know, and I think over time, you know, you just kind of develop a thicker skin. Uh, certainly, uh, people who go into political office, you know, generally speaking, anticipate, you know, having critics. It's like, you know, if you decide to go into acting or writing or singing, you know, you're being, um, you know, evaluated by people whose job title is professional critic. Um, and you're not going to please everyone and not everyone is going to like you. Um, there was a quote from Hillary Clinton. This was, you know, years ago that said, you know, when, when you're in, and this could be for, you know, uh, just anyone in, in the, you know, in, in, in the limelight, you know, that there are people who, you know, aggrandize you and gush and, you know, just speak of you in the most glowing terms. And there's people who, you know, trash you <laughs> every chance they can get. And it's kind of like the Olympics, you know, you got to throw out the high score, throw out the low score. And, uh, you know, the truth probably lies um, in the middle. I don't know that I have a particular um, mantra. I think it's more about going into certain situations, understanding that those are the rules of the game. And so doing more contextualizing and less personalizing. So, for what example, that? I Sorry. well, I speak to a lot of graduate students, for example, or, or faculty members at universities and and. When they submit a grant proposal, the people who are the grant reviewers, all they're writing in the margins, as well as, you know, their faculty advisors for their, their dissertation, all they're writing in the margins is everything that's wrong. They're rarely saying, nice turn of phrase, like, oh, good read. <laughs> they're just saying, fix this, improve that, this makes no sense. And it can be absolutely devastating if you don't understand this is the world that you're operating in. Like, the people are busy. They're trying to give you information to make you better, and they're mostly going to focus on what needs to be fixed. And if you don't understand that that's the larger organizational culture that I'm operating in, then it's very easy to take that really personally. So that's why I think it's important to kind of consider the source in, 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 in a situation like that, for example, or the, the example you gave me about being a, a political candidate. It's kind of knowing what you signed up for. I want to tell you just a quick, a quick story. There's a guy in my hometown here in Massachusetts who uh, we have this select board. We don't have a mayor. We have a select board of maybe 10 or 12 people who make decisions. And he had been on the town select board for, you know, the last 12 years. Re-election came up and he didn't get reelected. So I often ask, you know, audiences, well, how would you respond to that? And I think especially women be, you know, disappointed and devastated. And, you know, a lot of them wouldn't even try again. Well, this guy, the very next day, he took out papers to uh, run for election for, the, for a state office, like the next higher level up. He said it was the next natural step. And so that's not going to be natural thinking to a lot of us, that the next natural step following a step, a setback is to set your sights even higher. But it does go back to what we were saying before, which is the, the CV of failure, where you, mm -hmm. you look at that CV and you're like, right, I am, as a result of that last failure, I am now even more qualified to know what to do and what not to do. And so if you look at it in that sense, from a logical perspective, then it does make sense to, to raise your expectations after that. You should be better. Absolutely. You know, and I think a lot of non-imposter thinking is entrepreneurial thinking as well which is very much about, you know, learning from failure, throwing things up against the wall, seeing what works, figuring it out as you go along, you know, and just kind of keep going. Um, one of the, the final questions I wanted to ask you was, 
can we're looking at imposter syndrome from the perspective of you know the voice in your head I think you may have even already answered this can it be can it be avoided or is that the the wrong goal a bit like overcoming fear is the wrong goal mastering fear is a better goal no, I think it can be avoided, you know, in terms of um, helping children to avoid it. There's a wonderful book called Mindset by Carol Dweck, Stanford professor. Uh, when I read her book, it, it was very confirming because, you know, her whole approach, essentially it's about how we think about competence, how we respond to failure. is what I've been talking about, you know, for, for 20 years, but she did all the uh, quantitative um, research on it. And she has a chapter on parenting and sports and business so, for example, this might be useful to you, Julie, with your with your children. You know, she said the typical dinnertime conversation with school age children is, "What did you learn in school today?" To which they reply, "Nothing." I don't know, <laughs> or, right? Or I don't remember, right? Or I don't know, which is exactly what we said when we were children. And Dweck said, "Wouldn't it be more useful if every so often, once a week, every couple of weeks, you said, let's all go around the table and talk about something that was difficult.'" that was challenging and we failed at and how we dealt with it all start. The Ivy Leagues in the U.S. are all focusing a lot of time and attention on resilience. And that's what that teaches kids is resilience to setbacks, to failure, to difficulty uh, and, and, and how to kind of keep going and not be crushed and devastated and, and stressed out by it. I mean, you can take that out of the family and put it in any boardroom, put it in any, Absolutely. any strategy Absolutely. meeting, any go- any business meeting. Yeah. And I think organizations have to look at, you know, are we paying lip service to the idea that, you know, we're all about learning about failure? I mean, there are employees who think, yeah, sure, they say that. (laughs) But as soon as I fail, you know, I blow the big, you know, client, you know, that, uh, you know, I'll I'll be fired. So something I think organizations need to take a look at. How do they respond to failures and mistakes and and, and help people uh, develop a healthy response to criticism? I think one of my biggest realizations on this topic is that it, you know, it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. It can be used as fuel. You can develop a louder voice or a reframe. And as a result, over the years, I feel like I've almost developed a fondness for it. I was noticing this the other day when, when the voice kicks in and you think, you know, I have a, an automatic response now when that voice kicks in of going, oh, they, you know, oh there you are. There you are, mm-hmm. I remember. You usually appear around about now in every time that we do this and every time we've just been fine. So, you know, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Keep going, but I'm just going to keep working. Yeah, you, have you a seat. Keep... I'll come back to you later. <laughs> yeah, take a seat. You can keep talking, but, you know, I've got, I've got stuff to do. But you're very welcome. And that almost fondness has, has been a welcome addition to my life. It's certainly taken a lot of the panic out of the out of the equation so the question I wanted to leave you with was for anyone who knows their cycle and if you don't know their cycle I would recommend today have a cup of coffee take 20 minutes actually think about it if this is something that you that you find that is an issue for you in your life what is the cycle you think it you do this you do this you do this it results in this just so you can start to recognize it when it comes up if you could, if you had one piece of advice for somebody who feels their own particular cycle kicking in in that moment, what would it be? Uh, you know, I think I'm always going to come back to you know taking that deep breath uh, and um, normalizing the feeling by 
putting it into whatever the context. Well, of course, I feel this way. I've never done this before. or I'm the only woman in the room or I'm the only, you know, black person in the room or whatever it might be. So put it into the a context and then uh, reframe as quickly as you can, even though you don't believe the, the new the new thoughts. And then to keep going regardless of how confident you feel, because so often people wait until they feel more confident. And, and that's not how it works. You have to do the thing that scares you and let the confidence catch up over time. Yeah, you earn confidence. Confidence is a result. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. Like I've, I'm usually in these, in these interviews a far more quiet addition, but today I feel like I've, <laughs> I've had so many, yes, but what about, but what about this? about this moment so i appreciate your patience and your time oh it's been it's been fun it's been actually really a, a great great pleasure for me hopefully we'll have you back again soon that will be great thank you julie thanks so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.